are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3, which include the following two topics. Hymn to the Praise of God's Glory, and second, Fullness of Life is Knowledge and Vision of God. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about Him to the Praise of God's Glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is one of a group of four letters in the New Testament, which we call the Captivity Epistles. This is because they were written between 61 and 63 AD during Paul's Roman imprisonment. As we know from his letter to the Romans, he had intended to go to Rome to proclaim the gospel to visit them after he returned to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost in 58 AD. He did make it back to Jerusalem, but was arrested, imprisoned for two years in Caesarea under the Roman procurator, actually two of them. Eventually he appealed to Caesar and he was put aboard a ship it was a very difficult and long journey, and they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta and had to spend a winter there because it was too difficult to continue traversing the Mediterranean. He ended up in Rome in 61 AD, but as a prisoner, not free in that sense, to proclaim the gospel. However, he proclaims the gospel with a certain power and eloquence as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. This is why in chapter 3 in this letter, he is expounding the joy he feels in the Holy Spirit because he is able to proclaim the gospel through the loss of his freedom, through this suffering. And he sees this as a privilege in Christ. This is why he says to the Ephesians, I beg you not to let the hardships that I am suffering, the hardships that I must go through on your account, because Paul, just as with all the apostles, just as with all the disciples of Jesus Christ, understand that when God allows us to endure persecution, hardship, and suffering, even imprisonment for his sake, that he is doing this for the upbuilding of his church. He is doing this for others, for the benefit of others, for their account. 
So he says, do not let the hardships that I go through on your account make you waver, make you draw back in fear, make you tremble, make you lose your fervor for your life as Christians. He says, for these hardships are our glory. So the letter to the Ephesians, which is a really long and fairly thorough discourse, more so than the other captivity epistles, it is like the others in certain regards. But Ephesians is really considered one of the masterworks of the New Testament. Now, all of the captivity epistles, that is, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, with the exception of his letter to Philemon, the three I mentioned contain hymns or prayers of blessing, of praise of God, expounding the gift of salvation. These are so profound. Probably he was drawing on phrases, verses, from some of the early Christian hymns, and he was putting them in writing. And they continue to be so profound and worth our meditation that the Church has included them in the cycle of the Divine Office. So, for example, much of chapter 1, the hymn is contained in verses 3 to 14. The Church prays a good part of that every month in the four-week Divine Office cycle. We also pray from the letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. We pray the hymn in Colossians in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And we will visit that material when we get to each of those captivity epistles. St. Paul knew the Ephesians well because he had lived in Ephesus in both his second and third missionary journeys. In fact, he was there probably for a total of three years. Now, during this time, he was teaching and making, so to speak, new disciples so that they could go into the regions, the towns and cities in the area of Ephesus, and proclaim the gospel. So during the time he was in Ephesus, really, St. Paul was evangelizing a very large region in the far western area of Asia Minor. The hymn, then, which is the matter of our first question, is a hymn of praise, a hymn or prayer of blessing. St. Augustine tells us that no one can be fit for future life unless he train himself to render praise to God. Now, this is really what chapter 1 of the letter to the Ephesians is about. We should be so filled with this sense of God's blessings upon us that praise and adoration of God, thanksgiving, surrender to Him as our Creator, should simply spring forth from us almost naturally, so to speak, throughout our day. We can be, we can be on a walk by ourselves. We can be driving in our car on our way to run some errands. And we can recall a blessing of the day before. We can see the beauty of the day. We can notice the sun 
reflecting off the hoarfrost on the branches of the trees in the late fall. And instantly we think of God, of His glory, of His radiance. If we are uncomfortable singing the blessings and praises of God, whether in our mind or simply letting them spill forth vocally, if we're uncomfortable with that, if it's something that we don't train our souls to do, then we will not be comfortable in a sense in heaven. We're not yet prepared because heaven is going to be an eternal state of praising, adoring, thanking, and blessing God for what he has done for man in making us his children. Now, three times in this hymn, in verses 6, 12, and 14, St. Paul sort of gives us a clue as to why he is taking the time to articulate the blessings that he speaks of in verses 3 to 14. And what is that reason? He says it is for the praise of God's glory. Simply to praise God's glory. That's sort of a mysterious kind of language. The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. The inaccessible center, scripture and sacred tradition tell us, of his eternal mystery. What is revealed of it, of the holiness of God, of this inaccessible center of his eternal mystery? What is revealed of it in creation and history, scripture calls glory the radiance of his majesty. So we know something about it on the one hand, and yet it remains inaccessible to a certain degree, elusive, transcendent. Now the blessings which St. Paul enumerates here begin with the introduction really to the listing of the blessings begins with a declaration blessing God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Now we ask ourselves, how is it that man can bless God? God, after all, strictly speaking, is the sole source of all blessings. But God, God, first of all, has created man in his image and likeness. And in doing this, he has crowned us with his own honor and glory. In blessing man, God says, you are blessing. We are called to go forth in virtue of our baptism, to go forth in the world to bless the world and to be a blessing in the world, to share in Christ's mission and work of sanctifying creation, of sanctifying mankind. Because God blesses man, the human heart can in turn bless him who is the source of every blessing. So, what we are saying when Scripture blesses God, 
when St. Paul says, blessed be God, he is not adding blessing to God. He is not, in a sense, capable of blessing God. He is declaring God as the source of all blessing. And he is about to say that everything we know about God's love and God's honor and glory is blessing to us. So in this regard, blessing is a form of praise, adoration, thanksgiving, and surrender to our Creator. So we enter then into the blessings of this hymn, and he begins in verse 4 by speaking of the first blessing. And it is this, that God chose us in Christ before the world was made that we might be holy and blameless before him in love. He is saying that God chose us in Christ before he created time, before he created even a single person. God had a plan in his mind. That plan is about love. God is love. God did not need us. God didn't need to create the universe. God didn't need to create man. God didn't need to create the angels. God doesn't need anything or anyone. All of it glorifies him, but he didn't need the glory. We cannot speak of adding to God's glory. It's already complete, full, infinite. God is love. It is the mystery of love. Why does God create man? Because he is love. That's really the answer. It's the only satisfactory answer. We can understand it, and yet we cannot understand it completely. How can love be like that? That he would create creatures. We are not God. We are his subjects. We are creatures. He created us in his own image and likeness so that we could share in his love. We could share in the love of the persons of the Trinity. So we are persons. We have the stamp, the imprint of God's own being on us so that we're capable of loving, of entering into that communion. This was his plan from the beginning that we were not to be simply creatures subject to him, but to be his children, persons living within the triune love of the three persons of the Trinity. Why would God do something like this for us? Love. Love is diffusive of itself. Love wants to be shared. Love sort of needs to be shared. Love goes out to the other. Love desires communion with one like oneself. It's part of the mystery with Adam and Eve. When God creates Adam and he looks around him, there is no suitable partner for him until God gives him a bride just like himself. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's delighted. Because now he can have the communion of persons with his bride. 
This is all, of course, a prefigurement of Christ with his love for his bride, the church. So God wants to have a family of saints, persons, angelic and human, living with him as his family. Now, before we go further into the blessings, there are two things that are worth mentioning in light of this whole lesson, because we're also going to spend a few minutes later talking about, about man's knowledge of God, that man's fullness of life is knowledge and the vision of God. Now, the first of these is this. The Church Fathers distinguish between theology and what the Church for 2,000 years has called the economy of salvation. The word economy is from a Greek word that was in existence, of course, at the time of Christ, at the time of Paul. Oikonomia. Oikos means house. Nomia is from nomos, which means law, custom. Essentially, an economy is a management of a household. It's how one manages, governs, orders a household according to certain laws and customs. Now, we know that economy is a word used in the secular world, but the word economy has been used by the church from her very first days in speaking of the divine economy of salvation. Now, this must be distinguished from theology. Theologia, also a Greek word, taken from theo or theos, which means God, and logia. Logia is from the word logos, logos or logos, word, the word of God. Logos can mean then also speaking. God speaks. It's like a discourse, a revelation, knowledge of God. Now, when we talk of theology, theology then is the mystery of God's inmost life within the Blessed Trinity. We can't know everything about that, as we said. It's sort of the inaccessible center of God's eternal mystery. But the economy of salvation God himself has revealed. The economy of salvation refers to the works by which God reveals himself and communicates his life. God's works reveal who he is in himself. This is amazing because we have been given divine revelation of God. So God's works reveal who he is in himself. Conversely, the mystery of his inmost being enlightens, gives us understanding of his works. So the church, in speaking of this, says analogously, it's similar among human persons. Think about it. A person discloses himself in his actions. We know this to be true. Jesus himself says, it is by his deeds, by his fruits, that you shall know the person. So, a person discloses himself in his actions. The better we know a person, the better we understand his actions. 
Let's take a holy servant of God. For example, Blessed John Paul II, Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta. We came to know these people in their actions. We came to know their great love for God, their zeal for proclaiming the gospel, their strong faith, their uncompromising service and love for the truth. Now, on occasion, they would surprise people by what they would say or do in certain circumstances. But we had come to know enough about them as a person that we, in contemplating the matter, could come to understand their actions. And being done in the Spirit, if we have the Spirit of the Lord in us, we not only understand their words or actions, which otherwise baffle many, we are amazed by them. Now, they're creatures. They're imperfect people. But Jesus is God, and he did this all the time in the Gospels. Jesus was disclosing, revealing the Father in his teachings and in his actions. The more we know Christ, the better we know the Father. And the more we know Christ and the Father, the more we understand the economy of salvation. So, secondly then, the whole divine economy is the common work, we must remember, of the three divine persons. God is one being of three persons, three persons in one God. The Trinity has one and the same nature, one and the same operation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three principles of creation, but one principle. However, each of the three divine persons performs the common work, the common work, in other words, the economy of salvation, according to his unique personal property. It's a mystery indeed, but God has told us much about it. Therefore, we commonly refer to the first person of the Trinity as Father and Creator of the universe. The second person of the Trinity we know as the Son and the Redeemer of the world. The third person of the Trinity is the Sanctifier, the love between the Father and the Son. But whatever the Father is doing, the Son and Spirit are doing. Whatever the Son is doing, the Father and the Spirit are doing. It is common work. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Greek church fathers, speaks of God's progression, that there is a progression of God, a progression in the revelation of the persons of the Trinity. But from the very beginning, it's one plan in the mind of God. It is one plan of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit carried out commonly as one work performed by all three persons. Now, this plan exists in eternity before anything is created, time or man. God knows he will create man. He knows why he will create man. And the plan is set in motion. Even after man, who is crowned with God's honor and glory, turns away from God, 
Love goes out to save the beloved, the one that he loves. Scripture says that by sinning, man fell short of the glory of God. God comes and bestows on us, restores us to glory, and even elevates us, exalts us to a new and higher glory. Again, how can we explain that? We can't in human terms. We can only speak of it in terms of divine love. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing Hymn to the Praise of God's Glory. And now, back to Dr. George. The second blessing, verse 5. How did God carry this out? He marked us beforehand to be his adopted sons through Jesus Christ, that we would not be simply his creatures, his subjects. He wanted us to be his children. And since we are his creatures, God has a plan by which he will truly make us his children. The church throughout her 2,000-year tradition speaks of this in terms of divine filiation, filial son. It means that we have divine sonship. This is an astounding thing, something that probably most Christians take for granted. St. John, in writing his first letter, says, See what love the Father has lavished on us in letting us be called his children. And so we are, he says. We are truly sons of God because we have been adopted by him through his Son. It begins with the mystery of the Incarnation, that God becomes man and takes to himself our humanity. Now we're made in the image and likeness of God from the very beginning. We have the imprint. We already look like the persons of the Trinity, even in our bodily form. God is pure spirit. But God also knew that in the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity would become the Word incarnate. So there is a way in which, even in our bodily form, we are made in the image of God. Adam, the first person created in his spirit and material being, was created in the image and likeness of God. That's a profound thought in terms of thinking of us with our corporal body. So we are adopted children of the Father. Some of the saints write about this divine filiation, and they contend that so many Christians pass through life without really appreciating or understanding what it means to be children of a Father who loves us in such a way we know that on earth there are wonderful fathers who are tender, merciful, compassionate, loving, helpful in every way to their children. And we hold these up as model of Father, but they're imperfect examples of the true model of fatherhood in God our Father. And so, if we understood God as Father, the Father He is, we would approach Him 
as, for example, St. Teresa Lisieux did. St. Teresa Lisieux would fall asleep sometimes in doing her prayer of thanksgiving after Holy Communion. Now, this might almost scandalize some people. It didn't scandalize St. Therese. She was so childlike before the Father. The way she viewed it is that God the Father had simply picked her up and had drawn her to himself, held her against his heart, that she, in resting in the arms of her father, fell asleep in perfect happiness and bliss. She says, if a father picks up his little child and holds that child lovingly, would he be angry if the child fell asleep in his arms? This is the same one who was very sensitive to sin, who had deep, profoundly deep reverence for God. And yet, she understood what it meant to be a daughter of her Lord and Creator, who was Father to her. This is the blessing St. Paul is talking about in verse 5. In verses 6 and 7, he mentions the third blessing. Such was the free gift, he says, that God gave to us in his beloved. In other words, he is saying, this whole plan that God had in mind, he then fulfilled in the fullness of time. This is the work of redemption. So that when he moves on to verses 9 and 10, he is talking still about this mystery, but he says, God not only fulfilled his plan, but he gave us the wisdom to understand that plan, to understand what he was doing for us and what he destined us for. He gave us his own spirit to understand. He revealed the person of the Son, the one through whom we are adopted by the Father. He revealed the mystery to us openly, explicitly. God becomes man, and he says, here, this is my plan. I'm going to show you in a way you can understand. And so that blessing is about the revelation of the mysteries of the incarnation, the life, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It has been made known to us. And the end of this is that all things now are united and reconciled back to God because man, of course, had, had sinned. Man, in sinning, had separated himself from God. In a sense, there is a separation, heaven from earth. Scripture speaks of this. Man, in turning away from, in rejecting love, cut himself off from love, from heaven. So heaven and earth had to be united. Because we, because we violated love, we didn't have the love of God in us, which also meant we could not love one another as children of God. So there is a separation between heaven and earth, and there is a fragmentation or separation among mankind on earth. St. Paul, towards the end of chapter 3, is speaking about, well, actually, he refers to it in both chapters 2 and 3. He talks about how God was reconciling the world to himself, was uniting everything in his 
person. So what he says is, the purpose of what he was doing was to create a single new man out of the two of them. He's talking in this case about the Jews and the Gentiles, which really comprised all of mankind, because it was the chosen people and then everybody else, not among the chosen people. And in his own person, he killed the enmity, the hostility. At the end of chapter 3, he talks about how in Christ, that in his person on the cross, the breadth and length, the height and depth of creation of mankind is brought together in one body so that he unites all of mankind and he unites God with man in the very image of the cross. This is being done, it's being completed in the person of Christ. Consequently, he is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of the cosmos. He is Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of the past, the present, and the future. He has gathered everything back to himself. St. Paul, in writing his first letter to the Corinthians, speaks about this, and Scripture in several places talks about how everything is destined to be subjected to Christ. As Scripture says, he will reign on his throne until all his enemies have been made his footstool. And in the end, all, not only the friends and children of God, but even the foes, the enemies of God, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bow at the name of Jesus. Everyone shall. And once everything is subjected to Christ, Christ will in turn subject himself to the one God the Father who has subjected everything to him. So St. Paul, in describing this, says, when Scripture says that everything is subjected to Christ, this obviously doesn't include the one, God the Father, who subjected everything to him. When everything has been subjected to Christ, which will be at the end of time, he will return as Lord of Lord, as King of Kings, in full glory, power, and majesty. The Son will subject himself. Now think of this, he will gather the entire cosmos, all of time, from the beginning of time to the end, everything he will gather in himself, and then he will subject himself to the Father, which he's already done because he lived on earth in obedience to the Father, with the whole of creation taken to himself. So it's been completed, it's been accomplished once and for all, but it will continue to be accomplished till the end of time. Then he will subject himself to the one who subjected everything to him, to his son, so that, as St. Paul says, finally, at last, God may be all in all. Everything will be in its rightful order once again. The last two blessings, verses 11 to 14, Paul specifically talks about the blessings of salvation history, in the course of salvation history. And in the first of these, he says, it is in him, in Christ, that we have received our heritage. Now we, he's speaking of Israel, the chosen people, that was marked out for us beforehand. As we spoke in our last lesson, God chose a people to prepare for the coming Christ, a people who would be a light to the nations. God revealed that there is one holy mountain 
one holy city, one temple, and he wants to draw everyone to himself. These are signs of God, of course. Now, he did this in Israel so that Israel would be a sign of messianic hope to the whole world. So God chose them. Yes, Israel knew that God's making his promise to Abraham. He said, all nations shall be blessed in you. But Israel, many in Israel misunderstood the meaning of that blessing. They knew that they would be exalted as God's chosen one in the end. But they thought that their exaltation would mean that finally things would turn around and that while they were small and oppressed by all the great nations around them and treated as a nobody, that one day God would exalt his people and that all nations would pay homage to them, that they would be placed at the footstool of Israel, so to speak. This is why even the rabbis had sort of a derision or contempt for the Gentile nations. The Gentiles, they knew, were all the other nations, not the chosen people. Now that was true, but it's not that God didn't intend salvation for them. Salvation was to come through Israel. Israel was the preparation. So there were many in Israel who were surprised to find out that Christ's coming was the salvation for all and that he would gather all peoples in one body. In chapter 2, St. Paul's speaking of this when he says, Do not forget, I say, that you, now he's speaking to the Gentile Christians, you were at one time separated from Christ and excluded from membership of Israel, aliens with no part in the covenants of the promise, limited to this world, without hope and without God. He's saying this not to make them feel bad. He wants them to appreciate what they have been given. They have been given full membership in Israel. But he goes on to talk then about how God has reconciled the whole world in one body. Now that body is Christ's body on the cross. But the church is born from the pierced heart of Christ, the bride, the new Eve. And so the body is Christ's body, but that body is also the body of the church. The Jews had to understand that they were now, they were members of a family of God where all were equal. That's why St. Paul says, there's no longer Jew and Gentile for us. There's no longer slave or free man, male or female, or whatever other kinds of distinctions we have. He said, we are all one. We are members of one body, so that the church is one, and she has always acknowledged, therefore, one Lord. St. Paul will talk about this later in his letter to the Ephesians. That the church acknowledges one Lord. She confesses one faith. She is born of one baptism. She forms one people. She is given one life in one spirit for the sake of one hope. We're all together as one. So the final blessing, of course, is the blessing he speaks of that God has done for the Gentiles. He says, and now you too, in verse 13. You have heard the message, the gospel of your salvation. And having put your trust in it, you have been stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit of the promise 
who is the pledge of our inheritance. Once we have been sealed by God himself, he has put his mark on us. That mark is his pledge, his guarantee. It's as if he is even saying, he's drawing a line in the sand and saying even to the demons, you don't cross this line. You shall not touch a hair on the head of one of my holy ones. And of course they can't because they see the seal of God on us. They're all the more interested in us. They tempt us. They try to derail us. They try to get us to cross over the line. They try to lure us by false promises and illusory things and so on. They can't harm us or touch us unless we ourselves allow it. It is only through sin. It is only sin, really, that we need to be, in a sense, afraid of. Now, we have no fear with the Spirit of God in us. We have the strength of God in us. And through our obedience of faith, we have every confidence that we cannot be harmed or touched by the evil one. But the thing we must revile in our lives, have nothing whatsoever to do with, is sin. That is the only thing, the one and only thing, but it is a great thing because it can sever us forever, for all of eternity, from God, from our life in God. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Fullness of Life is Knowledge and Vision of God. And now, back to Dr. George. The second and third questions of this lesson really function almost as a unity because they talk about the knowledge of God that we have been given in Christ. And St. Paul, in several places in just the first half of this letter, speaks of his deep desire that we would come to understand what God has done for us, the life he has given us in the person of his Son. We need to have that understanding, real understanding, so that we will embrace that life, so that we will live that life more fully. He actually speaks of this desire in terms of a prayer to God the Father, even as he writes, May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and perception of what is revealed to bring you to full knowledge of him, he writes at the end of chapter 1. Now, we've spoken a little bit about knowledge of God. Even when God reveals himself, he remains a mystery beyond words, beyond man's complete understanding. Strictly speaking, we cannot have complete knowledge of God. As St. Augustine says, if you understood him, it would not be God. If we had a sense that, I think I've grasped this business of the three persons in one God. St. Augustine would tell us, well, you can be sure then you haven't. When we think we have grasped something, I think I understand the glory of God. I've studied it in scripture. 
we can be sure that in thinking that, we have not grasped it. Yes, we can go far in understanding, in wisdom and knowledge, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the life of grace. But for all of eternity, we are going to contemplate the mystery of God, and we will never exhaust it. So, strictly speaking, we can never have that full grasp or understanding of God in his eternal mystery. On the other hand, we have indeed received true knowledge of God. God has revealed himself to us. This is the profound reality of the incarnation and the power of the resurrection. Remember what Jesus says, it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, I bless you, Father, for having hidden these things from the wise and the learned, but having revealed them to the little children. It's the little children, those who are docile in heart, open and receptive to the knowledge of God and to understanding. Those are the ones who receive that knowledge and understanding. Christ says, everything has been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and everyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, it's not like the Son picks and chooses who gets this knowledge. He chooses, well, in a sense, he chooses all, but not all accept God's choice in them and so not all come to understand. Now, how can we know if we possess true knowledge of God? Well, in the first place, Christ gives us a lot of information about this answer. What does he say? He says, anyone who loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we shall come to him and make our home in him. We must have the indwelling trinity the Spirit of God living in us, love. We must have love incarnate in us in order to understand, penetrate, and grasp the mysteries of God and to live the mysteries of God in our lives. Jesus says, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. If you are my friends, you will do what I command you. We say, okay, well, so what do I do? What has Jesus commanded? We need to know the Gospels. We need to study all our life long the person of Christ. He is the Father's command to us. The Father himself says, listen to him. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. In other words, listen with our mind and heart. Listen and follow. St. John says in his first letter, Everyone who loves, because remember, God is love. Everyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Now, he's speaking here about that divine filiation. And whoever fails to love does not know God, because God is love. He says a chapter later, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. In his Son. We must live in Christ. Christ must live in us. That is to possess knowledge of God. And not only possess it, but to become it 
to become another Christ living in the world. St. John goes on to say, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever has not the Son has not life. Right after this, he says something very interesting. We are well aware, he says, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding of the one who is true. We do know the truth. We do know what love looks like, what love acts like. And he has given us that understanding and configured us to that in our baptism and through the life of grace. So it is through the life of grace, our life in the Trinity and the Trinity in us, that we penetrate and grasp the mysteries of God, that we grasp them not only intellectually, but we embrace them, we become them, we live them. And living them, we desire, we desire even more that they be fulfilled in us. When God gives us lights of understanding, maybe we're reading scripture or we're reading a good spiritual book or we're reading one of the lives of the saints, and all of a sudden we have that sense of, I, I get this, I get something. Now it's not to say, I get everything, but we have a light that's given us and we understand something in a fuller, in a deeper way than we ever grasped it before. If that is of the Spirit, the grace that will automatically come with that knowledge is the desire to become that ourselves. It's like, I want to be like that. That's how I want to live my life. Lord, make me like that. I want that grace in my own life. That's automatic. It comes naturally with knowledge. When Scripture speaks of knowledge, knowledge is not this passive, intellectual state of knowing. Knowledge is an intimate relationship with God. It's life in God. It is a communion of persons. That's what true knowledge is about when the Lord speaks of it. From this loving knowledge, a church tells us, from this loving knowledge of Christ springs forth the desire to proclaim him, the desire to evangelize, the desire to draw others to the yes of faith in Jesus Christ. We're on fire. What happens is that not only is our mind enlightened, but our heart is set on fire. We want everyone to have this knowledge. We want everyone to share in this joy, in this zeal. That is exactly the tone of St. Paul, particularly in chapter 3. He's talking about his imprisonment, his confinement, his hardships. And the whole of chapter 3 just burns with his love for God, with his excitement, with his zeal. You wouldn't think that he was confined or held down in any way at all. He is absolutely free and he's filled with joy and the love of God. That's what happens with the person who possesses this true knowledge. Now, Finally, St. Paul mentions in chapter 2, he talks about how we have been raised up in this new life with Christ. We have been raised up with him and we have been given a place with him in heaven. Those are amazing words. And we ask ourselves, well, is he speaking with a little hyperbole? Because he's speaking of the power of the resurrection and sharing in the glory of Christ. 
and we look at the present state of our lives and it certainly doesn't look much like or feel much like glory and resurrection to us on any given day. But this is precisely the mystery. It is the reality. St. Paul wants us to grasp this. What we need to understand first is that, mystically speaking, we have instantaneous and total life in Christ. Our life in Christ is instantaneous and total the moment we are baptized. We live from that moment forward, unless we separate ourselves from God through sin, through grave sin, from that moment forward, we are secured in Christ in heaven who sits at the right hand of the Father. We are a resurrection people. We are raised up, and yes, we have the power of the resurrection in us, and yes, the spirit of glory rests on us. And yet it is veiled. It is hidden in this life. There is another mystery, however, with this. Practically speaking, it's not that everything is finished complete and over at baptism. God, in his generosity, in his merciful and good plan, allows us to live out our lives on earth in Christ, growing degree by degree in holiness and glory, so long as we are on earth. Every hour we are on earth, every day is a blessing from God. It's another chance to grow in holiness and glory so that the degree of our eternal beatitude is not decided until the moment we take our last breath. Every hour is a new opportunity for us to grow. There is no ceiling, there's no limit to the degree of holiness to which we can attain. Why? Because love is limitless. Love is infinite. There is no limit to love's measure. This is profound. And so, we have been given the power of God himself, the power of the resurrection, to carry out this magnificent work. We have God in us, working in us, working with us. That's why at the conclusion of this, St. Paul says, Glory be to him whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ever ask for or imagine. Some of the readings for question three touch on catechesis and the sacramental life of the church. We have to see them in light of what God is doing for us. This is why the church takes very seriously her obligation to continue catechizing her people so that the more knowledge we have, the more understanding we have of the mystery of God, the more we open ourselves up to be recipients so that we can grow in holiness and in love. But we need the sacramental life of the church. We have been given two sacraments that the church celebrates, that the people of God celebrate daily, the world over, until Christ comes again. The sacraments of confession, for the healing of our souls, all our sins, vices, stumblings, imperfections, all of them are rooted in the wounds of the human heart. And in confession, God heals us. He heals us in the depths of our being, in places we don't understand or know much about, that we can't even articulate what the problem is. God is healing us. 
and secondly the sacrament of the Eucharist, whereby we are united with our Lord. We consume our Lord. We become him whom we eat, the food of heaven. And as the Church tells us, it is especially in the sacrament of the Eucharist that Christ Jesus works in fullness for the transformation of mankind. So with this in mind, it is a mystical life we have to understand that we are living. We tend to think of the mystics as those who have extraordinary graces of interlocution, levitation, or whatever. But there is, in a sense, an ordinary kind of mystical life that we all live in virtue of our baptism. We are mystics because we have been inserted into the mysteries of Christ. And our life mystically is hidden with Christ in God. We are members of the mystical body of Christ. So, as St. Irenaeus says, we need to understand that the glory of God for man, that is, the glory of God is man fully alive. We want to glorify God. It is to be fully alive in our whole being. And man's life, he says, is the vision of God. We want fullness of life, then we must attain to vision of God. Now, as much as possible, and of course in heaven, God will grant us that vision in the beatific vision. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 20, which include the following two topics. Our unity in view of many differences, and second, sin is darkness, holiness is light. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.